The Radical Secular Podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. Subscribe at YouTube, Apple Podcasts and all the major podcast channels. Visit our website at theradicalsecular.com for articles, insights, and our complete library of episodes. Support us on Patreon and follow us on social media. Welcome to the Radical Secular Podcast. I'm Joe Kipinti. I'm Sean Prophet. After a year's pandemic delay, almost 200 countries at the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow, Scotland, known as COP26, Conference of the Parties 26, are working to come up with measures to combat global warming. We will be discussing how well that effort is going, but without getting mired in a lot of technical details. We are interested in the human story here, and it's going to get personal, as a danger of this magnitude should. Before that, however, Sean posted a piece in our journal that is central to our project here at the Radical Secular called God Doesn't Matter. There are many aspects to his essays that are worth talking about, and it does relate back to our main issue, climate. If you listened to our show before, you know we don't pull punches here, and we aren't going to today. It's about you and me and all that we are about. But first, I want to remind you to make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends to listen. And please head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the Radical Secular. We'd really appreciate your support. Even if it's just buying us a cup of coffee every month, we have support tiers from $3 a month on up. New episodes post Monday at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles weekly in our journal at theradicalsecular.com. And now we can start with the t-shirts. Sean, what do you have to offer? Well, today this is relevant because it's relevant to my article and it's relevant to what we do. It says, no gods, <laughs> no fucking masters. And that is really what secularism is. You know, we, we need to figure all this stuff out for ourselves here as human beings. And so uh, I think Absolutely. this is... <laughs> um, as much as possible, we want to we want to take this whole God thing and just like that just needs to recede into the background of history. And unfortunately, we're not that's not what we're seeing in the world today. No, it really isn't. And my T-shirt actually goes right along with that and doesn't have to say much else. It just has the word human in multicolors. And really, another aspect of secularism is this focus on humanity. And that's what we're going to be doing. Well, yours is sort of the positive statement and mine's the negative statement. This humanism is what we want. We are humans. We want to be human. We want to yeah. focus on being human. That is the deal here. <laughs> and it's two sides of the same coin. We have to do both, right? Yeah. So there's the survival question here that we'll be tackling today. And we'll also be starting with talking about the atheist question. And I want to invite Sean to talk a little bit about his piece, God Doesn't Matter, that he wrote in our journal. Yeah, so the real reason why I, I wrote this piece is just because, you know, of this constant conflict that we see between, you know, do you believe in God? Don't you believe in God? What is the, what is the meaning of all of this? And, <laughs> and it's, also, it's also a shift that I've been making recently uh, as I've sort of realized because I've been an, uh, an atheist activist for about 20 years and we've seen the atheist movement kind of disintegrate and 
So there were really three parts to my article that, that play into this. And the first is the ontological question of the existence of God. And this is the part that I consider to be an irrelevant distraction. While acknowledging religion's many harms, I think we can finally conclude that belief or non-belief in a supreme being has absolutely nothing to do with morality or lack thereof. And there are tons of examples and counterexamples in both directions of, you know, of religious people behaving badly or well and atheists behaving badly or well. And I, I happen to think that there are a lot of things about atheism that sort of compel you into a in, into a better um, better behavior toward humanity, but that is not universally the case. And so um, I, I want to just, though, read a quick passage from this article about mm -hmm. you know, to let you know what I'm saying here. And, you know, it's the, it's the question of does he or doesn't he exist? And this plays right into the hands of religious power structures by creating this sort of permanently untestable and binary proposition. And it, it sets up preposterous philosophical rabbit holes like Pascal's wager which is an equally pointless statement of behavioral economics. How should I behave if there's a God versus there isn't um, that merely builds on the original default assumptions of divine existence. And so I'm a little bit advocating for what would be called the agnostic position, meaning that like <laughs> God doesn't matter, right? That's pretty much a statement of it, but it's not that simple. Uh, I'm not just calling the argument incoherent. I'm also calling it a red herring. And so uh, I think that's important because we, there's a lot of distraction. There's a lot of, in, in, even in the atheist movement, there were all these people are debating Christians. People are debating God's existence. And by doing that, they're not really getting to the heart and the meat of who and what we are as human beings, who and what we are as a society, what's a good society, what's a, what's a bad society, and, and you know how do we get there? So uh, the second part of my article is discussing the terrible behavior of the leaders in the new atheist movement, which has at this point, basically merged and made common cause with the right wing in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to take my word for it. Read the Phil Torres article in Salon, which I want to talk a little bit more about today, and we'll link to it in the show notes. I hadn't read the Torres article before I wrote mine, and one of our listeners sent it to me. And it just really confirms and validates and elaborates on what I said about the moral collapse of the so-called new atheists. And so in here, you know, I... I really discuss how this is how this has just been painful to watch, watching people like Richard Dawkins and Steven Pinker and Sam Harris and uh, Lawrence Krauss. A lot of people I looked up to, Michael Shermer, uh, Melissa Chen, pe people who were really, it seemed to me, committed to humanism and improving ethics. And now they have started organizations and they've affiliated with people that are definitely moving us toward uh, white Christian nationalism. And it's so ironic. You've got, you know, you've got Sam Harris. He's made uh, race, racial essentialist comments. You've got a, a lot of these people who are on the board of this new organization called FAIR, which is supposedly an anti-racist organization, but they make racist arguments. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so I, you can read the article to find out more about that. And I just want to, the third part of this is, a further expansion of the conservative moral hierarchy. And we talk about the conservative moral hierarchy on this show all the time. We do. By referring to that list that George Lakoff published in 2017. And I've added to that list 
because I think it was incomplete. He didn't, you know, I've added cisgender above transgender, which is a, 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 a firm part of the conservative moral hierarchy today. Uh, turfs above gender inclusive feminists, you know, housed above unhoused. If you're clean and sober versus an addict, you know, the, all of these things, there's a lot mm -hmm. of victim blaming involved here. If you're sick, it's your own fault. <laughs> you know, there's also a, a bias toward native born Americans above immigrants, unless you're an, an indigenous native American. And then that flips around. So there's just anyway, the, in the article, I just described so much about this hypocrisy that is that that is happening and how, you know, disbelief in God hasn't helped anyone overcome this hypocrisy or to become better humanists. So I'll leave it at that. Well, I think it's a very substantive article. I read it twice carefully because there was so much to it. And I really appreciate all the work you put into it. I know it was a lot. Thank you. And I like the title. It describes your essay quite well in a multifaceted way. I think where I really like and what I think where I think it shines uh, is how you bring the focus back to unearned hierarchies as a way to explain the reaction of atheists who reject God, but still seek to maintain the injustices that underlying the belief in God. Uh, getting a handle on that conundrum is is the novel thing about your essay. You really you really focus on that. I do have one one small critique about it. In the beginning, you say that it's the fear of God that keeps people believing in God, and I think that's certainly the case. But there is also the that the hope and comfort that people get from believing in a supreme being that cares about them, right? Um, mm -hmm. This grand caretaker. I think that also is something that needs to be addressed because because if you don't address it, I think it leaves that gap. Yeah. And I'm, you know, having been raised in, in a highly religious organization, I understand that sort of need for meaning and, and it drives a lot of people. And and there's no question that it's comforting. The idea of God is comforting for a lot of people. And I wasn't trying to imply that the only reason people believe in God is out of fear. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's it's a bit of a self-effacing attitude because all evidence points to the fact that we are, are an evolved animal species. We're primates. And there's nothing we can do to change that fact, no matter how, what we believe in or how we feel. So everything we've accomplished as a species, we've accomplished on our own without any supernatural assistance. And that includes climbing out of a deep hole of ignorance and violence in our prehistory. And this is something that we've discussed at length in our episodes about Richard Rangham's book, The Goodness Paradox. So even if someone gets that comfort from the mm. idea of a supreme being, there's a cost to that. And that the cost is in not recognizing our own capacity, not standing on our own two feet as a human with all of our combination of flaws and brilliance. And, and, and we are incredibly bo both flawed. I mean, we I always bring up the example of uh, Rachmaninoff and, and some of the greatest music that's ever been written. He was writing right during the time that the Third Reich was getting going and, you know, getting on, in the run up to building uh, concentration camps to, to mm -hmm. kill Jews. So that those two things, it's, it, it's a, the great art and the and the great depravity. Those are all human. And, and there's no there's no God or devil involved. This is all us. So I think that. Uh, the idea of taking comfort from a supreme being is something that separates us from other humans. It diminishes our sense of reliance on each other, that we're all in this together. I mean, look what happens when somebody goes to the hospital with a serious illness and then people pray for them. Maybe they get better. And after they're released from the hospital, they credit God for their recovery. Well, what about the doctors and the, uh, who treated them, <laughs> right. the scientists who developed the drugs and therapies that made them better, the nurses who changed their bedpans, held their hands while they were at their most vulnerable 
in all cases, the knee-jerk assumption of a relationship to a supreme being has the side effect of diminishing the importance of these mutual contributions of our fellow humans to our existence. So that's why I'm not so keen on the idea of people taking comfort from a supreme being. It's got a downside. I, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Of course, God gets the credit, but never the fault, right? If the guy ends up dying, then right. it's, you know, it's God's it, will or it's yeah. God works in mysterious ways. It was <laughs> God's plan. Like it was his time yeah. for, to go, yeah. right? <laughs> Well, one of the questions that comes up on this show is is differentiating the voices and opinions of the show itself with each of us. And I'm firmly secular, but I don't consider myself an atheist. And I know we've talked about this before. There's a <laughs> political dimension to consider for me. I, we want to build a secular tent, a big secular tent. As Sean mentioned, you mentioned in the last show in regards to the loss in Virginia, the parents involved in education issue hurt Democrats, right? Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, our children should be right taught in a secular context. They should not mm -hmm. be indoctrinated. The curriculum should be set according to academic standards. It's right for Democrats to advocate secularism in the, in the schools. But what we also said is that they need to be smart about how they do it. Mm -hmm. I'm an educator. And how I publicly label myself is of consequence, as it is for politicians or any anyone else really pursuing a formal public vocation. Neutrality in these matters is is the point in a way. I can call myself an evolutionist because it applies to a well-funded and elucidated theory. It is a central thesis in academia. I advocate that theory, but I do not call myself an A-intelligent designer because that would be a religious label. Mm -hmm. In the same vein, I can call myself a secularist as it, it is founded in the philosophical and political principle of our civilization, but not an atheist as it is based on a religious um, context. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a small point, uh, it seems like a semantical point, but semantics are important. Whether we like it or not, I mean, this whole notion that semantics is just semantics is no. ludicrous. Language right? matters. <laughs> Language matters. Here's a challenge for us all. Fighting for secularism while working to create a coalition large enough to take on the right-wing theocratic encroachment that we've talked about on this show. And by the way, the religious right isn't interested in solving the climate change problem, which we'll be talking about later. The movement is wholly aligned with the fossil fuel industry. Worse than that, Christian fundamentalists literally expect the world to end. In fact, they want it to. <laughs> Think about that. Yeah, don't get me started about Christian apocalypticism. It's one of the most destructive attitudes on earth, and we could spend a whole show talking about that. <laughs> um, I fully agree with you that the terms atheism and atheist have been poisoned, and they've been poisoned twice. First, they've been poisoned by those who are in the religious majority who have insisted since forever that a person must believe in God in order to be a moral person. And those terms have been poisoned a second time by the bad behavior of the leadership in what used to be called the atheist movement, but is now basically merged with the fascist far right in America. Um, but th all of that's just kind of noise as far as I'm concerned. When you strip away the bullshit, being an atheist just means that you personally don't believe in a supreme being. That's it. It's not a religious label, as we used to say, in the same way that bald is not a hair color. And I, I know that's kind of a cliche, <laughs> sort of a smart ass thing to say, but it's, it's true. <laughs> Good point. I got to give you that one. <laughs> but atheism is about rejecting the notion of a supreme being. However, that is defined, right? It's a challenging position, but a worthy one to take uh, in our society. 
the consideration is one of strategy for me. And I don't mean the typical, we have to watch our tone, and not offend people's kind of strategy. We should not be afraid to stand up to the encroachment of religious domination and to fight for a truly secular society. Full stop. Mm -hmm. The strategy I'm talking about is adopting a counter narrative on our own terms. The label of atheism is a 19th century reaction to a totalizing force of religion. It is, in, in an implicit way, it reifies the narrative, just as if I call myself an A intelligent designer, gives that belief some legitimacy. And it's implicit. At first, there is no choice but to engage with the doctrines and language that dominate society by the oppressors. But as resistance, a resistance movement matures, it should, in my estimation, challenge the, nominating, the, the dominating discourse. For my part, I label myself as the alternative to theism, whether that be a humanist or a secularist. I don't know. What do you think? Is that a counter argument that makes sense to you? Well, you know, I, of course, I started out my article by saying that God doesn't matter, right? So we, we should, we should be in a place like if we were in Star Trek universe, I, I you know, it wouldn't even be a conversation. I mean, they, they, the religions that they encounter are always like more primitive societies that they're dealing with, right? And they have to figure out, okay, are we going to respect our gods or how are we going to deal with their gods and, and their, right. their prophets and all of that, you know, the Bajorans. But um, in, in reality, the, the entire principle of that universe is secularism. You have to be because if you're going to be interacting with all these different species and all these different religions and opinions, you have to maintain this neutrality. So I personally think... It shouldn't be political that you ought to be able to call yourself an atheist because it's not hostile. It's it's not necessarily a 19th century label either, although maybe it is strongly associated with Robert Ingersoll, who was a famous atheist of that time. But atheism, it, atheism should not be controversial. It's just a statement that you don't personally buy into the idea of God. It's not even a definitive statement that there is no God. It it just isn't since we know that nobody can prove that negatives can't ever be proved. So it's a statement of personal non-belief. And it's only the evidence of the absolute fragility of God belief in general and the victim narrative promoted by religious believers that they've made such a stink about it that you feel that you can't take on an atheist identity without offending them. And I'm really kind of playing devil's advocate here, though, because I understand your point. Um, and as, mm -hmm. as I wrote in the article, I don't give this question the weight that I used to. God just doesn't matter anymore. To me, what matters is justice. And, and so God is just a tool. He's a scapegoat, a crutch, a fantasy, a device, or a club that people use to beat their enemies over the head. And so you're right. We right. shouldn't have to define ourselves against religion or gods. But until the power of religion stops being a factor in hindering social justice, we need to keep telling religious people that the emperor has no clothes. And <laughs> you do make a good point, though, that we don't have to be a intelligent designers or as Bertrand Russell might've said, a teapotists with his teapot <laughs> experiment, right? Yeah. Why the hell not though? We don't believe that there's a teapot orbiting around Mars. And that was the whole point of the thought experiment. Any more than we think that there's some old dude named Yahweh who rules the universe. So what's the real issue? Yes, we're humanists and secularists first, but all of that also implies that we're non-believers, which is just another way of saying atheists. We don't believe in Yahweh or any other man-made gods, right? Right. And this, this is, a, you know, an important conversation, obviously. And yes, correct. For my part, I do not believe in Yahweh or any form of supreme entity standing over creation. So your point is valid there. 
by definition, I am an atheist. But to your other point as well, we should not give this question so much power. I think that's absolutely right because we don't want it to deter us from our stated goals of universal justice and human progress. We can't ignore it. Absolutely. And it's a fair to call oneself an atheist. I'm glad you made your point and you gave that view some solidity. I, I enjoyed hearing that. Um, but frankly, our goal now includes survival as well as universal justice and, and human progress. And that's what we're about here. A big part of that is that we need to challenge the existing narratives blocking these goals to your point. The narratives about atheism and secularism, the narratives about social justice, the narratives about climate change, right? This is a good time to turn to doing just that. Sean and I are working on challenging precisely that in this episode. And um, I take it from here. We've got something for you. Yeah, well, this is a great clip that Joe made, and it was it was building on uh, some modifications I did, okay, to a chart that was basically the latest kind of climate and social justice denialist psyop from what's left of the new atheists. And the particular little gem that we're working on here comes from Peter Bogosian and Michael Schellenberger. And it's a chart that purports to define a taxonomy of what they call woke religion. Okay. And it's really one of the most twisted, false, and dishonest things I've ever seen. And, and that's from anybody. Okay. I don't care. You could talk about fundamentalist Christians. You could talk about Republicans. This chart is probably takes the cake to the, as being <laughs> the most dishonest psyop I have ever seen coming out of anyone. And if you're listening, Peter, <laughs> you, maybe you could take that as a compliment. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> or bad job. Um, okay. So it we're is gonna, bad. It's terrible. I, I agree with you. We're, we're going to play this, this, this video and we're going to put the chart up on the screen when we, when we edit this. So, but let's talk a little bit about the authors because I have some personal knowledge of them, particularly Peter Bogosian. He's someone who I once had a great deal of respect for. In fact, he was the only person I interviewed twice on my old podcast in 2012 and 2013, which was called National Progressive Talk Radio. He's the author of a book called A Manual for Creating Atheists, which is a great book in which he introduces the strategy of street epistemology. It's actually really a good tactic for dealing with everyday interactions with non-critical thinkers. It's not just about atheism either. It's about pushing back against all forms of non-critical thinking. I really enjoyed talking to Peter on my podcast, and at the time, he seemed eminently reasonable in terms of supporting progressive policies, including about climate. And it seems like what happened to him in the meantime is that he's had some bad experiences in academia and decided to turn against the whole institution and also to come out against what he sees as the excesses of the social justice movement. And I just don't understand how someone makes that turn, but here we are. Bogosian is also part of the FAIR organization I mentioned in my article, as well as this new right-wing University of Austin project. It's a discouraging thing to watch. But now he's also involved in creating some really vicious propaganda against progress by casting the entire range of efforts toward progress as a religion, while at the same time claiming to still be a progressive. He's, of course, concerned that progressives are doing it wrong. And I should say concerned trolling. And he's going to come along and shit on the entire movement of activism with his superior approach and intellect, which ends up in a heaping dose of mockery and shaming and steering the whole effort toward denialism and classical conservative approaches. Who would have thunk? 
right? Which he now agrees with. And it's one thing to constructively criticize progressives. We should be able to take criticism. But to label the entire progressive movement a religion, as he's done, and then to claim to be a superior true progressive by spouting right-wing talking points is really in super bad faith, and it's something that has to be addressed. So the other person involved in creating this chart, Michael Schellenberger, isn't someone I've had any interaction with. But to give you an idea of where he's coming from, he just published a book called San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. The book has gained enough attention to be reviewed by hard right conservative George Will in the Washington Post. Uh, I haven't read the book. It's probably a subject that we should take up in a future show, because what's become clear in the past few decades is that the liberal conservative divide in America is very much a divide between urban and rural existence. The reasons mm -hmm. for this are pretty obvious. As Charles Murray pointed out, American cities have become increasingly brown and multicultural since the 1960s, while rural areas remain about 75% white. So once again, this divide is a proxy for America's never-ending civil war about racial equality. And it's now a divide that has serious implications for the climate conversation because urban life is also inherently greener. People drive shorter distances and can walk, bike, or take public transit. They live in multifamily housing, which has a lower carbon footprint. People in car and truck dependent rural areas drive long distances and can't take advantage of the economies of scale that come with density. So climate has further sharpened the divide between city and country. So with that background, let's discuss this chart and what is so very wrong with it. Joe, why don't you like sure. start out? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this article by Schellenberger, Why Wokeism is a Religion that we are putting the microscope to, it tries to sound evidence-based and reasonable. But if you look at what it's actually saying, it's quite startling. And let me just give you some examples, and then we'll get to the actual chart. In regards to Black Lives Matter and the killing of black people by police, apparently it's hyped by woke people because it's not getting worse that whites are, get, are killed and because whites are killed as well. So that makes it hyped. It makes the case that the only reason why the rates for blacks is higher, and it's like three times higher according to its own statement, because it's justified to be higher. Justified by whom? They've never said. The police ostensibly. That makes a lot of sense. Killing of trans people. Can't prove it's gone up, he says in the article. Well, it's never been measured because that community has been rendered invisible in history, including to statistics. <laughs> so no, we're just now really looking at this. So how can you, of course you can't prove it from the past. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no data, right? And never says that. The reason why it's happening uh, itself, he says, the reason why uh, trans people are killing themselves more is because the media is talking about it. He literally says that. That's such and it's bad like faith. We, you know, <laughs> we have we have more breast cancer because we have mammograms now. Yeah, that's essentially the, the logic, right? Mm -hmm. um, carbon emissions have fallen in the U.S., so hence the media is being alarmist by mentioning climate change uh, disasters and climate change issues. That alarm is causing people to be depressed. It's not ostensibly that humanity is altering the climate and destroying the biosphere that's making people depressed. It's that the media is pointing it out. That's what's making people depressed. That's literally what the argu argument is in this article. Less people are dying from natural disaster, hence the whole thing is overblown. That's because, okay, why? Yeah, it's actually true. Less people are dying from natural disasters. We've developed systems and technologies to warn people, <laughs> like satellites, Mm -hmm. They can track hurricanes and like Doppler radars that can track tornadoes. And we get people out of the way now. And that saves incredible amounts of lives. 
Um, but as disasters worsen, these systems are going to get swamped and there's going to like Katrina, right? Uh, so let's take a, a closer look at, at this, this scheme, this uh, hierarchy that they've created here. Yeah, I mean, okay, so <laughs> the 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 <laughs> this chart is I'm I'm it's very very hard to talk about this because it's so ridiculous. But it, at, at the top it says woke religion a taxonomy, as if this is some sort of scientific breakdown of what's wrong with right. with uh, with with progressives. And and this this is a broadside against all of progress, right? And so they have categories across the top: original sin, what happened in the past to make things so terrible today, and then. Guilty devils, the people who make things so terrible. Myths, the creation story of this progressive religion, right? Sacred victims, people who continue to be harmed by the original sin, right? The elect, those chosen to make things right. Supernatural beliefs, beliefs beyond scientific understanding or known laws of nature. Taboo facts, things forbidden to say. <laughs> Taboo speech, words that trigger anger among the elect. Purifying rituals, acts perceived to make people innocent of guilt and responsibility, and purifying speech, words people use to be perceived as virtuous. Because, you know, we're not we're not changing our language to help anyone. We're just changing it to, to help ourselves feel more virtuous, right? It's it's preposterous. Right. And this thing, so on the uh, on the left-hand side now, we're we're talking about categories, and these are the categories of the things that we are supposed to uh, you know, be blowing out of proportion or exaggerating or whatever it is. Okay. And let me read those off. So we start out with racism. Racism is supposedly a religious issue. Climate change is a religious issue. Trans rights are a religious issue. Our approaches to crime are a religious issue. Our approaches to mental illness, drugs, and homelessness is now a religious issue that progressives only care about because they want to signal that they are virtuous. This is, I mean, I have to say it's kind of ironic because some of these arguments can be made against Christianity and other religions. And what Boghossian is doing is he's taking the same lens that he used to write a very good book about atheism, and he's now turning it against progressives and while claiming to be progressive. And this is just a like a crazy making um, psyop. That's a, that's a, that's the only thing I can call it is a, is a psyop, and and a psyop is designed to demoralize and confuse an enemy. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is a psychological operation on all of us that is tr really trying to muddle the issues, and in, as a result, it's causing a these kinds of things cause a great deal of harm. They really do. We're going to go through these step by step. That's a, that's the goal here. And so, Sean, take it away. All right. Well, the first thing I want, so I have reframed these columns, right? So original sin has now become problems we need to work on. <laughs> and that is what progressives are all about is identifying what problems in society are, are causing harm and, and what needs to be repaired. And so in the first column about climate change, we have fossil fuel use, the industrial revolution, sort of um, cleaning up the damage that's been caused by the industrial revolution. Now, that's not saying that the Industrial Revolution didn't do good. We are all living because of the Industrial Revolution at the standard of living that we're, that we're used to. And so we, it's obviously been positive. We're not saying that it was a sin. We're saying that it, it can be improved. We can create another Industrial Revolution that will give us even more prosperity without all of the damage. Okay, Modern farming. 
same problem here. Modern farming is right now is very heavily dependent on fertilizer and pesticides, and it's also monocrop, and that can be improved. <laughs> uh, Western development also is something that is currently unsustainable because we would need like 12 Earths if all 8 billion of us lived as we do in the West. So these are problems right. that we need to work on. They're legitimate. It's not in the category of original sin, right? Absolutely. I mean, these things, not only should we work them, we must work on them, right? It's, it is actually an existential uh, requirement that we work on these, that we evolve. You know, we, we, we created these linear systems that have a great deal of waste and do a lot of damage to the environment and to humanity. I mean, 11 million, 11 million people a year die of pollution every year in, in this country, um, excuse me, in the world, right? That's, and do we ignore that? Uh, climate change, how can we possibly call the the consequences of that you know, being caused by original sin. I mean, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And to frame it that way is crippling. It makes a mockery of, of any, any efforts to actually solve the problem. And so that brings us to the next column, which is guilty devils, he calls it, right? And I reframe that as who are the people who are benefiting from the problem? Who doesn't <laughs> want this problem solved, right? And he g gives us a very good list. That's Exxon BP, the fossil fuel industry, the climate deniers, uh, Monsanto, the Koch brothers, and corporations. Well done. You know, those are those are the people who don't want this problem solved. And don't we have a right to point it out to hold them held to hold people accountable for it? I mean, this is the consequences of their inaction. They're hiding the truth because it's all been proven by the Freedom of Information Act. As we've seen the documents from the 1970s, we know that these corporations um, had full idea of what was happening, how damaging their product was. We don't know all this. We can't hold them accountable. And if we do, we're turning them into devils. Is that what, what he's saying? I mean, come on. That, that is what he's saying. And it's, it's ridiculous. So the next column is... He calls it myths or the creation story. I call it straw men or realizations that threaten the status quo. And let me start. The first one of these is a realization, and that is that the Earth's climate was safer in the past. Okay, we evolved in the Holocene. All, all of our human development where we became Homo sapiens occurred in a particular range of climate. And we are now blowing past that range into what some people have called the Anthropocene. Uh, because we have now shaped the climate and we are moving that climate out of the range for our continued existence. So <laughs> that's not a myth. Uh, no, cl climate change is making natural disasters deadlier and more expensive. Fact. Okay. Yeah. Climate change is the main cause of high intensity forest fires. Fact. Okay. Uh, we rarely discuss climate change. That's a straw man. I mean, obviously climate change is discussed a lot and it's denied a lot. And there are, you know, there's there's no end of stories on Fox News and all the other right wing outlets. Every time something happens, basically trying to deny that there's any link to climate change. So we discuss it all the time. The next one is yeah. a is a, is a truth, which is that we can power the world with renewables. These guys deny that that's possible because they're shills for the fossil fuel industry. Peter Bogosian, you've become a shill for the fossil fuel industry. It's just it's there's no other conclusion that's possible. Um, the other one is that human civilization is unsustainable. That's true. Human civilization is unsustainable as it, as it 
is currently constituted. That doesn't mean it can't be made sustainable, but if we wanted everybody to live a first world existence, each person emitting 15 tons of carbon every year, we would need like 12 Earths. And even then we'd probably still be warming up all 12 of those Earths. So we've got to do something. I mean, it's, it's dysfunctional to call these things myths when they are backed by science, clearly all of them, right? That we have a great amount of evidence to show that all the things that you just went through are actually have been derived by a great deal of research by the, some of the smartest people on this planet for the last 50 years. And they're apparently creation stories. How does that work? Well, not to mention not just smart people, but supercomputers. I mean, the very yeah. highest quality, fastest, most complex computing systems have been used for climate modeling. And the, the, the best part about that is that we know they work because backtesting has been done and backtesting has proved that the models, even the less accurate models from the 80s and 90s have, have been very, very close to, to you know, being yes. accurate as to what the conditions that we're experiencing now. So yeah, um, absolutely. It's as scientific as you can get. And if you're a scientist, you can't deny those things. Yeah, I mean, I, I once for, for several years, I taught climate change. I went through all of this. I went through the science. I went through the paleoclimatology, the modeling, the hindcasting, all of it. I've seen it with my own eyes. I researched it with my own eyes. I saw the work that was done on it. And to call these things a myth is actually just depressing to me, just depressing. It's, a, it's spreading ignorance. And so I want to talk about now about the his column of sacred victims. Okay, again, this is a mockery. And I've I reframed this column as people who suffer most from the problem. And these are subsistence farmers. This, these are nations such as the Maldives and Tuvalu and other small island nations. Young people, because they have more years of life to lose. And we're going to talk about that later. Bangladeshis, because their their nation is 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 the closest to sea level, and the global south in general, because they are in poverty and don't have the money to deal with climate mitigation. And notice uh, these people almost overwhelmingly people of color, poor people, people with, with with less power on the bottom rung of many of these hierarchies we can constantly are talking about. Yeah, and he makes the, this so this chart is effectively a sort of a codification of his white supremacy, right? Because if these are sacred victims, that means that they're not really victims, right? That they're somehow responsible for their own fate, right? Because all of this stuff, all of this kind of, of vicious propaganda, the implication is that, yeah, we could just let these people go. Like, you know, we don't have to care about them because they're savages or something. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's- I don't know either. It's depressing. But so his next column is the elect, those chosen to make things right. And I have reframed that as villainized change agents threatening the status quo. Because <laughs> there, remember, there's trillions of dollars riding on fossil fuels. And we're going to talk about that also a little bit later. But so these are the people that uh, the right wing has villainized, climate scientists, activists, journalists, UN officials, Greta Thunberg, Vandana Shiva, and Thomas Malthus. Thomas Malthus is the original villain because he's the first guy to use math to say that, you know, population can grow to outstrip your resources, right? <laughs> right. 
Yeah. And, and of course, this falls right in line with the whole project of delegitimizing academia, delegitimizing institutions of knowledge in our society, even the CIA. I mean, in the, in the military, I mean, the Pentagon just came out with a, this really just powerful report on the dangers of climate change, national security. Are they, um, I don't know, are they the elect too? <laughs> I mean, how does this work? Well, we know, and we've we've had this conversation before, but the first thing a cult does is tell you that everyone else is lying to you. So we've right. seen that in the Trump era, conservatives have done this in spades. And, you know, Trump started out with with judges and the courts and universities and the, the fake news media and uh, and, and then start, he started attacking the Pentagon. Anybody who disagreed with him suddenly now those are those guys are corrupted and we have to build a whole new set of institutions to bypass these other ones. Right. And. So that's what's yeah. going on here. He is labeling in his next column supernatural beliefs, which are, he calls, beliefs beyond scientific understanding or known laws of nature. But actually what this is are just galvanizing truths mixed with straw men. And the first one he talks about is that climate change will make humans extinct. It's very possible. That could happen. And we know the models that, that have been run and uh, there's been some, there's obviously debate between models, but even the most benign models show large portions of the world becoming uninhabitable. So it's a fact. Humans causing sixth mass extinction. True. Provably true. Uh, provably. Study of tipping points is scientific. They're trying to say that there's no such thing as a tipping point. Well, it's like if you've ever been, if you've ever been to a, any sort of math class or, or understand functions at all, you know there are discontinuities and nonlinearities. That's just basic science, yeah. right? So yeah. again, he's... It, in this chart, he's attacking uh, basic science, and it, it it defies any imagination as to how he can do this. It really does. He says here, prosperity doesn't depend on high energy use. <clears throat> now, that's a straw man, because what we're really talking about is that our current energy use is inefficient. We could, we could be doing, because again, what we need is not energy. We need heating, cooling, transportation, right? We're, we don't need to consume mass quantities of energy to do those things if we figure out more efficient ways of doing them. And so that's what a lot of the climate mitigation strategies are about. Is like, let's not burn fossil fuels in our vehicles, which maybe only 10% of the energy that comes from that gallon of gasoline is actually moving your car down the road, right? When you consider right. all the, the energy it took to refine and produce that and get it to your where you could put it in your car, right? Now the actual energy that you're getting out of it is, is almost negligible. Whereas if you get your energy from electricity to drive your car down the road, much more efficient, right? So we don't care. We don't care how we get there. As long as you get in your car, get down the road and get out, get where you're going. It's not about high energy consumption. It's about utility. Yeah. And same thing with like homes. You want to keep your home warm in the winter. I did a story in Maine or if this is community in Maine that put up some passive homes. And then Maine had this huge, you know, they had uh, ice that destroyed their, their, their electrical grid for weeks. And these buildings in this town stayed warm all that time. They lost like six degrees in two weeks from no heating energy, no energy input at all because it was so efficient. Right? We can do this. We don't need, we, we can cut, you know, energy costs by 90% in homes or more. Why not? So, yeah, it's true. I don't understand the logic. 
because we've wasted so much energy for so long, right? We build cardboard homes with not enough insulation and we just blow hot or cold air into them by burning fossil right. fuels. And it's, it's an insane way to live. And uh, there's a hundred other examples, right? How we can be, how we can conserve energy. There are at least the, probably the next thing in the, in the next item on the chart is he says, prosperity is not necessary for happiness. Well, that's a straw man, right? Obviously we want prosperity. We just, it just doesn't need to be done this way, right? It, there's, there could be right. different definitions of what prosperity means. It doesn't just Absolutely. mean conspicuous consumption all the time, right? It could be a more holistic form of prosperity, but these are things these guys don't even want to address. They get so offended because all they want to do is just the, the pedals already to the metal of, of, of the gas pedals already to the metal. And they just want to push it through the floor. I mean, that's the only way these guys can think is just linear. Let's just go, 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 go more money, more oil, more, more gas, more drilling. Right. And at a certain point you hit a wall. Yeah. So much for supernatural beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, like the, the cornucopian is that that's the ultimate supernatural belief, right? That we can just, that there's a cornucopia right. that we can just keep keep taking and taking and taking, and there's not going to ever be an end to it. That somehow technology or whatever is going to always solve everything, no matter that we could do, we can just relax and it'll, it'll be fine. That's, that, that's, that's uh, supposedly their, their scientific belief. Yeah. That's not, that's not, not scientific at all. Next item is he says, organic agriculture can feed the world while protecting nature. Well, that's a whole other huge subject. Okay. And essentially what he's implying there is that our only choice is monocropping with lots of chemicals, pesticides, fertilizers, right? And right. organic agriculture isn't necessarily a panacea, but what we can do is we can improve the way that we're doing agriculture, make it more sustainable, make it more compatible with nature, right? And make it so that when right. we, we fertilize a field, the runoff from it doesn't create algal blooms that destroys all the oxygen in the, in the ocean. I mean, it's like... It's like Come on, how can you uh, sidestep these types of problems? Well, here, here's the logic there, okay? It's like saying, you know, of course, exercise is not going to get rid of all your sickness and illness in the world, right? So we shouldn't exercise. Organic farming is, is part of the solution. It's not the whole thing. Exercise is part of the solution of health. It's not the whole thing. And to frame it that way is a straw man's argument. Completely. And the fact is to me, I mean, I, I have no problem with GMOs and, 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 and particularly when it comes to climate, because what they're doing now is they're going out into the desert and they're finding various plants that, that are, that are food bearing plants, right? And how do these plants grow in, in, in dry areas, in hot areas, in salty, with salty water. And they're, 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 they're analyzing these plant genomes and they may be able to, to, to take some of those plant genomes and incorporate them into our food crops to actually feed the world, right? So <laughs> it, that's not organic at all, but that's something that we right, very much need right. to do and it's very important. The problem with GMOs is how they've been commodified and controlled by massive corporations. It's not the GMOs themselves. Yeah, GMO, GMO, is just, uh, GMO is, technology is actually a good thing. It's a great thing. Okay, let me go to the next column. We're, we are almost, we're almost through this, but we have to go through it because it's so, so bad. He calls it taboo facts. I call it distortions, irrelevancies, and debunked lies. And this is what we already discussed. Deaths from natural disasters have declined 90% since right. 1900 because of notification, <laughs> because of warnings. He says, renewables can't power a high energy world. That's false. Okay. The, every square meter of the surface of the earth gets a thousand watts of solar energy. And 
there is more energy that falls on the earth in, you know, something like an hour than we use on, you know, to power industrial civilization for an entire year. And right. we already know and that's that just one. That's just solar. That's just solar. That's not even counting wind or tide or, or geothermal. Geothermal, geothermal is whatever. a huge source. Okay. Yeah. Huge. And so renewables very much can power a high energy world. And what's more is efficiency or what we call megawatts, right? Can extend mm -hmm. that, <laughs> can extend that ability to, to, we will be living more energy rich, more energy dense lifestyles in 30 or 50 years than we are today. And that's a fact. And that is with, yeah, with renewables, you know, with renewables. Yeah. So he says here, emissions are declining in developed nations that could soon peak and start to decline globally. That is like so irrelevant. Okay. Because one of the reasons why emissions have started to decline is because of the burning of natural gas versus coal. Natural gas is replacing coal, but it's still not solving the problem because natural gas production produces a lot of free methane that escapes into the atmosphere right. and could be even potentially worse than coal. So this is these again, things he's not dealing with at all. No, not at all. Okay. Food surpluses are rising. Once again, this is completely false. <laughs> we are now in a food crunch in the US and, and, and in the rest of the world as well. And a lot of this is because of climate change. I mean, this started out back in Syria. The Syria conflict was because the farmers couldn't farm. And, and it's going on. All, it's a domino effect that's going on all over the world. Food insecurity is on its way up right now. Yeah, there was this uh, report that was issued a week ago that talked about it's actually the problems much worse than they thought. That this, there's, uh, there was a, uh, a consortium of scientists that really focused in on food security, and they re and they realized that we're going to see big problems in some of our staple crops. It's that that this going that that exceed predictions. And we know that these issues of food insecurity can become a real problem and they can snowball very quickly because of the sort of nine meals uh, question of civilization, right? That we're all nine meals away from becoming savages because if you've gone out without food for two or three days, that's the only thing you can think about and you will use whatever energy you have left to get food. Right. You know, in the mid-1990s, I lived in the Andes and the village that I was in was up around 10,000 feet and up this real, it was really super remote. We had to hike in, right? And there was a road that you could take with a heavy truck or Jeep, and that's how food would come in. And then there was, a, because it was an El Nino year, there was massive rains, and the road was wiped out for weeks. And we were stuck in this village, and we slowly saw the food dwindle. And it took, by the end of it, we were eating like old potatoes, and that was it. And, you know, us Westerners, first worlders, my wife and I, we were kind of freaking out. But the people in the village who had experienced this before, they were kind of okay with it. They understood the, the, the nature of it. But I'll tell you, when you get to be in that position, you realize just the things that you take for granted, the first worlders take for granted, like food and water, clean water was, was the other issue for us. It, they become the issues of your attention. They take everything. They are so important. And I don't think you realize just how powerful that is until you, you go through something like that. Well, they're really playing with fire here because if you actually study history and understand where we came from and how we got here, famine was one of the biggest killers of humans throughout history up until the modern era. And by trying to say, oh, our food surpluses are rising and sort of discounting the idea that, you know, we're seeing impacts all over the world reducing 
our ability to farm, right? That is, we're right. playing with fire. And so I, 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 I can't stress enough. Yeah. And of course, you know, food insecurity is not just about gross tonnage of food that's being produced at all. It's about the food availability. And that's completely ignored because climate change, it causes a lot of political destructions. It causes war. It causes systems to break down, which means food insecurity increases just for that. Yeah. As and well. You can have food sitting in a warehouse and if you don't distribute it to the people, right? That and right. and this this happens. I mean, we're in a situation now where we have a trucking crisis, and the, uh, we, so we can't exactly. Get we're seeing it in our society. Yeah, and so think. Imagine what it's like in in less developed countries. I, 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 it just the fact that there is this chart was just published, and he's sitting here at at a moment when we are facing down the barrel of of you know potential famine in large parts of the world, and he's claiming that food surpluses are rising. It's just it boggles the mind. So irresponsible. Okay, he says some climate policies hurt the poor and increase emissions. Well, obviously any imperfect implementation, you know, any policy can be imperfectly implemented and let's not do that. Let's not increase emissions, right? Let's try to do the best we can. <laughs> let's let's not wear seatbelts because a small percentage of people who wear seatbelts actually get get more damaged because they can't get out of them during a fire or car fire or something. It's, right, so let's not wear seatbelts. It's very much that kind of argument. And then the next one, which is, this is a big canard on the right, and that is this idea that nuclear energy is safe, clean, and effective with myriad be beneficial side effects, okay? We could spend a whole episode uh, debunking nuclear, and, and we probably should. Let's just suffice it to say that, yes, we should continue to run the nuclear plants that we have, but no, we shouldn't build any more of them. And the reason why is because you get about three times the bang for your buck when you put your money into wind, solar, and battery storage, as you do with nuclear. Right. Absolutely. And of course, there is a whole thing that nuclear is central, right? It can be very easily controlled, whereas a solar power is democratic. Anybody could put one in their home, right? Yeah, there's been very much of, a, of, a, of an emphasis as we've gone into more serious climate mitigations where the oil and gas industry has tried to steer us toward towards solutions that are centralized, like nuclear power, like right. hydrogen, <laughs> like natural gas, and all of these things that they could still have their hand in. And uh, they're, they're just not liking the whole democratization aspect of this. No. Okay, let's see. Prosperity without inflation follows shifting to cheaper, higher energy density fuels, not lower, more expensive, lower density, more expensive fuels. Okay, this is another really bad straw man because one of the things that happens, yes, petroleum fuels are extremely energy dense, batteries are less dense, okay? Solar energy and wind energy are less dense, all right? But what goes along with building out these systems is also orders of magnitude improvements in efficiency, right? Right. And, and, and LED light bulbs is a case in point. They're five to sometimes even eight or 10 times more efficient than the same wattage incandescent light bulb. And now they've just taken over the world. I mean, you don't buy incandescent light bulbs anymore. And there's that, that same thing can be replicated with cooling, with heating, with other more efficient methods that people are coming up with. And so it's, this is not just a static situation where we are locked into doing everything the way that we used to do it. And so clearly, uh, renewable energy is not only viable, but, but an improvement over the fossil ecosystem. 
I mean, there are going to be fluctuations, ups and downs, like we're seeing now with gas prices and so forth. It's going to be complex. It's not going to be a smooth line of change. And so you can always pick out that one little piece of the line that's going up just at the right time to make your point and not look at the whole thing, which is what they do. This is what they do. Yeah, they're cherry picking. Okay, his next column is taboo speech, words that trigger anger among the elect. Oh, ha ha, how funny. The elect are getting angry, right? What it really is, is fossil industry bad faith or uh, in other examples other than energy, it's the conservative moral hierarchy. And so his claim here is nuclear power plants have the smallest environmental impact of any energy source. That is false. Uh, he says fracking reduces carbon emissions. Laughable. The only thing he's talking about there, he's basically saying that if you switch from coal over to methane, and but with fracking, that you're going to reduce the overall carbon emissions per megawatt. And that may be technically true, but that's not taking into account the fact that there's been a lot of methane leakage, which has basically negated all of the gains from shifting away from coal. Yeah, the under-reporting under by corporations of methane leakage has been an issue of contention. It's extremely under-reported. Extremely. And you can see, I don't know if you've seen those infrared camera footage of when, you, when you're when you looking at these fracking wells and you see the black methane coming out, you know, that, that is being released unburned into the atmosphere, which is 25 times more potent of a greenhouse gas as CO2. Right. It's, it's just startling. Okay. He says here, economic development outweighs the impact of climate change. It does not. And again, what we're looking at here is we're seeing that we still have high levels of economic development based on you know, the, the, the fact that we've been doing this all for, you know, a century or more. Okay. And we haven't seen yet the disruptive, the disruptive aspects of climate change that are going to do to the world economy. Right. So we think it's like, we've, we've kind of already fallen, gone, gone over the cliff and we haven't fallen yet. And he's using that as evidence to say that we can just keep doing what we're doing. Well, in this whole discussion, there is not a mention of externalities of any kind whatsoever. And, you know, the costs associated with fossil fuels are not measured. Like there's so much damage that's done that it is never factored into these equations. And when we start factoring them in over the long term, what we see is a global climate change crisis. Yeah. And by the way, this is if you if you actually look academically at all of these things that he's saying here, I mean, there is just there there are just reams of data that contradict this chart. And he's just acting as if this data doesn't even exist. And it's dishonest. <laughs> well, he, he's doing making the classic logical mistake of starting with an idea and trying to find evidence to prove the idea, rather than you know looking at the world with an open, objective mind, looking at the evidence and then coming up with ideas. No, it's just post hoc rationalization for yeah. continuing to burn fossil fuels. <laughs> that's what yes. all that's all this is. Uh, okay, purifying rituals and speech. I will just go through these real quickly because they're ridiculous. And the first one is carbon offsets. Well, of course we want carbon offsets. (laughs) You know, if you can, if you can pay to reduce carbon in one area, right, that helps offset when you're burning carbon in another area. I mean, it's, it's classic, right? I mean, it's an an offset is an offset, right? And that doesn't mean he's trying to put this in terms of like a religious indulgence, like buying an indulgence for bad behavior or something, (laughs) you know, and that's not what it is at all. It's like, if you, you know, if you plant trees that are going to offset X number of tons of carbon, you know, you can feel less guilty about taking a, a plane flight. That's going to, you know, produce that number of tons of carbon. It's just, it's just math. Okay. Walking, biking and public transit. Renewable energy credits, carbon budgets, 
climate reparations, uh, climate conferences, Extinction Rebellion style performance art and public protests and recycling. Okay, these are all good things, right? And he's trying to tell us that they're just rituals that don't matter. Um, purifying speech, okay? And I call it these linguistic reforms to reduce harm. And, you know, renewables, organics, climate-fueled, sustainability, net zero, carbon zero, and carbon negative. Those are all good things, <laughs> Yeah. What else is there to say, Sean? That's it. I mean, we've pretty much been through the whole chart now. And I think yeah. it was important to go through it, though, because we just see the incredible amount of bad faith here. Yeah, it, it really is bad faith in the true sense of the word. And we can't afford it. We can't. And I, I know before we delve any further into our main topic, which we already clearly have started with this chart, I just want to say a word about hope and what is possible. And... I've had this ongoing argument with, with Penn, my non-binary child, about hope and optimism on this very climate question. And they seem to think that we need to face the reality of climate change fully head on and say for what it is. Climate change is nothing short of apocalyptic, according to Penn, who is 23. And only a truly radical shift in our economy and in our consumer society gives us any chance that humanity can persevere. That's his take. And he's right about that. If humanity does not change significantly in, in its ways, the science points to consequences that are so dire that they are hard to process on an emotional level. And our emotional take on this issue is really at the heart of it. On my part, I distinguish between hope and optimism. And as he does not, unfortunately, but I'm working <laughs> on it. <laughs> the first is really in the realm of ideas optimism. The second is more about emotions, hope, and the ability to persevere. I have made a conscious choice not to entertain the idea that all hope is false hope on this climate thing. It's as simple as that. I think a certain measure of hope is required to fight against this great tide, but I do struggle with finding the right balance. What are we to make of all these global conferences? So far, they have been by the most objective measure a, a dismal failure. Despite these meetings, these 25 plus meetings of heads of states and all the fanfare, emissions have not fallen. They have risen by over 50% in the last few decades. And that's a true indictment. And I, so I hear what Penn is saying. We have talked many times in the show about the importance of listening to others who have a different identity or life perspective. Penn, like his generation, has just started his adult life watching people on the tail end of their lives making horrible decisions that are leading to the worst possible outcomes imaginable. The result of this great moral failure of leadership is that the young are weary and distrustful. A lot of young people feel having false hope or optimism is a death sentence because it creates a catastrophic complacency when what we need is actionable and bold action, to say the least, right? And they don't, they don't deserve any more bullshit. Do you think, John, Sean, that it's justifiable to have hope with this COP26 conference? Will <laughs> this be any different? Or are we just seeing climate theater, as many young people believe? Are these meetings nothing but a show that serves the status quo, in other words? What can <laughs> you say to a young human who wants hope for a full life, but are in a state of dread that they will not get one? Well, this is a very important point. And um, 
Penn's a smart kid, and I have a lot of respect for the way that they feel about this. And but I want to I want to say that it's very important to get it right, and that is that to be able to hold this tension between hope and doom. Because if you have excessive optimism, then you just go on your merry way, whistling Dixie, whatever, you know, and you don't do anything. You don't change. Uh, If you feel that doom is certain, you do the same thing. Party like it's 1999, right? And (laughs) so the key to all this, if we are going to be able to thread the needle, you have to have hope in spite of what looks like certain doom. And I know that that's really hard to do when you see, because they have a right to be angry. Let's put it that way. Uh, There's been an incredible failure on the part of world leaders. And I think the only thing worse than these these COP conferences would be not having them. And that's what we have to realize is that at least people are there. And even if they're talking, right, okay, so emissions have increased 50%, but how much would they have increased given the growth in population and given the economic growth had we not had these conferences? I even think the Kyoto Protocol was a good thing, right? I mean, it, it that was actually ratified by most people, right? <laughs> Unlike the Paris Agreement. So I think right. that uh, there have been positive changes and we could be living in a much worse world. And that's clearly not good enough for your child's generation, okay? And, or, or my kids for that matter. Uh, they're in the, all of our kids, all of our kids. So it's like, I can't look them in the eye and tell them that we did the best we could because we didn't. I mean, but a lot of us to be fair, didn't know up until, you know, we, we, there were, there was a, there was a lot of blindness, climate blindness. I mean, when James Hansen first came to the Congress and started talking about this in the eighties, um, it was the last thing on anyone's mind. Now this is a common topic of conversation and, People are starting to get it. They're starting to think about it. So I do believe it's just like if you fall into a crevasse and your only hope is that if somebody comes along to rescue you and otherwise you're going to die, the longer you can hold out hope, the longer you're going to survive. If you give up right away, you will waste away. And, you know, maybe maybe you died, you know, an hour before somebody would have come along to save you. So we have to hold that hope out as long as we possibly can to continue to work on this problem. Well said. And you've talked about, you've talked about the Kyoto protocols and the Paris Accords. There's been a lot of these meetings, dozens of them. And the, the consensus that's coming out now is we have to maintain the earth within a boundary of some kind, 1.5 degrees Celsius, ideally, but two degrees Celsius, if we can. And, and that's been sort of the, 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 what's set the goals around these talks. Uh, now we're, we're talking more about net zero, and the net zero seems to be the new way of approaching it. Um, either way, the Paris Accord set this target for limiting warming, and now countries are talking about net zero targets and pledges, but it's all being left up to each country, right, to submit their own uh, emission reduction standards and targets. And it never really deals how countries collect and report their greenhouse gas emissions. There's a lot of problems with that. I mean, you can fudge the numbers very easily. And also how to regulate global carbon markets. That's something that really has not been um, 
I mean, we've talked about it over and over, but it's just nothing's really solid has come out of that yet. To those problems, we can add how finance, how to finance climate action, right? Particularly how poor countries can afford eliminating cheap fossil fuels in favor of renewable energy, while also adapting to the destructive effects of global climate disruptions. Um, they simply just don't have the resources, and rich nations will have to assist them in developing these new technologies, these new systems, these, these new uh, processes to be able to deal with, the, with, the, with this, what's coming. And that's been the real stickler. Uh, the wealthy countries have committed and then failed to, to um, honor those commitments over and over. Uh, to add to it, there's this, um, you know, there's really this separate pool that's needed to address historical harms. In other words, climate reparations, just like uh, reparations around the, the, the you know slavery in the United States, and it's the powers that be just don't even want to open that conversation. They re absolutely refuse to go there until finally uh, Nicola Sturgeon, the Prime Minister of uh, Scotland, just broke that taboo uh, and discussed this openly for the first time this year. And she called on rich countries to start to pay their debt to developing countries around the world, in part for those reasons, in part for reparations and in part because it makes logical sense to do it. Um, it's no longer an excuse. There's no excuse for not doing it. So she says, that's one country. We've got 200 more to go, right? <laughs> yeah. So what many young people are asking is how the hell does humanity avoid climate catastrophe and face our injustices in a self-serving capitalist global order run by disinterested and aloof billionaires at best? Again, let's be real here. Well, this is a... <laughs> These problems all have to be solved, and they all have to be solved at the same time because the climate crisis is really a sort of a mirror for uh, global capitalism, colonialism. I mean, the the inequities of the past have just been magnified even even more by by the climate yeah. crisis, and and it's also a situation where it's not just that you know, as a lot of climate activists have said. The people responsible have names and addresses. They do. They do have names and addresses. And we and and if we could just wave a magic wand and get these people to do the right thing, we would go a long way. But it's also more complicated than that because we all have a stake in it. And the first thing I want to bring up is this $30 trillion stranded asset problem. And that is that our entire financial system, stock market and pension funds and, and everything else, are based on the idea that these $30 trillion worth of fossil fuels that are still in the ground are going to be produced over the next 30 to 50 years, right? And if we do that, we'll, we'll kill civilization, right? So if we want to not kill civilization, we have to not produce these fuels that are worth $30 trillion. And that in turn is gonna cause a domino effect because the, the current valuation of the stock market today, right? is based on those assets having value. Right. You take that value out of the system and suddenly there's a whole realignment and there's going to be a drop in value in these things and that is that can that's re that can cause uh, a recession. And if suddenly people who they're counting on retiring <laughs> with with this pension fund that is invested in oil and gas and now suddenly you find out that 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 oil and gas company or fund is no longer valuable what happens to those people's retirement? So this is not as simple as just saying, let's flip a switch. Let's, let's stop producing carbon. It has consequences. And 
There's another part to this, which is the coastal real estate problem. And that is that, you know, some large number of the world's population, I don't know the figure right now, but lives within a hundred miles of the coastline. And a lot of those coastal cities are, are low enough that it, they will be affected by rising sea levels. And it's already happening. We're already seeing it during storm surges that even, even uh, real estate that's as high as eight or 10 feet above sea level can be affected by storm surges. So um, this is something that <laughs> Republicans have reacted to by just making it impossible to even use the terms climate change in any of their planning documents, right? Because they know that if <laughs> once you start acknowledging that some of this coastal real estate is going to need to be condemned, now that affects your tax base, right? That affects property values. Those things are those things go away, right? We suddenly start realizing that, you know, based on your topography of where you live, your house could be essentially redlined or condemned. Can't get a mortgage, can't sell it, <laughs> right? Uh, right. And and you won't even be able to live there past you know maybe twenty forty five or some some future date that you can predict based on the sea level rise. Okay, so just to acknowledge that again could tip the world over into recession. So and <laughs> we need we need the economy to be strong so that we can rebuild the energy infrastructure. Building these gargantuan uh, transmission lines and and giant wind turbines and tidal projects and and solar fields and and ba battery storage and and all of this undersea cables to move energy around the world. I mean these are these are multi billion dollar projects and we need a strong economy to make this happen. So this is not just a question of of you know people won't do the right thing. Even if we all decided to do the right thing tomorrow, it would be uh, a dicey business. And so what I want to point out is that. No one's really in charge. The UN has no teeth. And the US is compromised by the Republican Party. The EU is doing better than the US, but no one is holding anyone to any of these climate commitments. It's complete right. global anarchy, right? And if you look at uh, Russia, Rosneft, and Saudi Arabia, which is Aramco, and at least a dozen other oil producing countries, they're far larger than what we think of as the world's largest oil companies like Shell and Total and ExxonMobil. Well over half the world's oil production is done by these NOx or national oil companies, and they have most of the world's proven oil reserves. So when we're talking about climate denialism, it's not just companies, it's nations. And that's why this is all so difficult. We're dealing with nation state level actors here who've been sowing disinformation, even though they've all been well aware of the threat of climate change for the past five decades. So the, the good news here and where we can really win on this is that climate mitigation will eventually be extremely profitable. Whoever builds and commercializes a fusion reactor is going to, that's a multi trillion dollar industry. Uh, whoever builds and commercializes a scalable carbon capture technology is also, that's a trillion dollar industry. And so is replacing the world's automobile fleet with electric vehicles, trillion dollar industry. Okay. So we're a multi trillion dollar industry. And the problem is, is we are basically in a global oligarchy. And the only people who can make any of this happen are the very wealthy and powerful. Governments can help. But most governments are captured by fossil money, and we, so we shouldn't count on too much enthusiasm. And one bit of good news is that we're seeing an uptick in private fossil fuel divestment and ESG investors changing fossil energy companies from the inside. And ESG stands for Environmental and Social Governments. Within the past year, there was a significant proxy action at ExxonMobil that has begun to shift their corporate stance on climate. So... We need to be grateful for that. And we should also be grateful to people like Elon Musk, because regardless of how you feel about him personally, and I'm not that much of a personal fan of his, 
He single-handedly kicked off the global automotive transition away from fossil fuels, and he did it in spite of relentless attacks from the fossil fuel industry and short sellers and just media blasting him. I mean, he really, really pulled through on this. And yeah. by the mid-2020s, we're going to see a demand crisis start to take a bite out of the oil industry solely due to electric vehicles. Already, we've seen EVs displacing the equivalent of a million barrels of oil per day, a million barrels a day. And by 2023, that could double. And then after that, the demand destruction grows exponentially. And this is going to have all sorts of consequences, right? Which, I mean, if you game this out, we're going to start to see these collapse in in fossil fuel pension funds. And we might even see countries who are heavily dependent on fossil fuel production go to war over this, right? I mean, it's, it's it's not out of the question. What happens if Russia can't sell its oil? I want everybody to think about that, okay? We should be grateful also to China, regardless of the fact that they are an authoritarian country with a horrific human rights record. That authoritarian structure gives them tremendous ability to make quick and sweeping changes. And they take the climate relatively seriously. And I was glad to see that they made a side deal with the U.S. to cooperate on emissions reductions, even though that deal took place outside of the COP26 framework. So That was encouraging, yeah. Very, very. And we've got to put aside our natural biases and suspicions against large corporations and dictatorships like China, because if we want to solve the climate crisis, we need the world's largest countries and companies on board. And we need them on board, even if they're not moving as fast as we'd like them to. This is a key point, too, because there's a lot of hostility from climate activists. And I get where they're coming from, okay? I I get where where Penn is coming from. I get where Greta's coming from, (laughs) okay? That we're moving too slowly. But We have two choices, either an imperfect climate mitigation effort, which is all we're going to get, or no effort. And so it's a glass half empty or glass half full situation. Right. I mean, any change that we make is good change, even if we don't, even if the ship, you made a great analogy the other day about this giant tanker making a turn finally to avoid the shoals. But, you know, tankers take a long time to turn. And so... It's hard to say whether or not they're going to be able to turn in time before they hit the rocks. And and I think um, any any effort is to help that tanker turn is a good effort because we don't absolutely know if we're going to hit those rocks or not. And of course, Pat Penn thinks we already hit the rocks, but um, <laughs> we may be scraping bottom a little bit. But I don't think we quite hit the rocks yet. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, all those all those are great points, and it really does help us have some hope. And that's, I think, important. I think it's a hard sell at this point for a lot of young people, unfortunately. I think they're going to want to see some substantial, like, uh, inactionable uh, policies that are going to show that the world is taking this seriously. And a lot of the change is happening in a thousand ways, in small ways, rather than a few big ways. I think that's what you're saying. And I think uh, it's hard for, for young people to see that. It's hard for, because of all distrust that has built over the over the decades on this issue. Um, well, you know, what I would say, politics oh, at this point is has become part of planetary physics, and um, right. they may not trust. Like that. <laughs> they, they may be angry. They may not trust, but they don't have a choice. And ultimately, yeah. they don't have. We're all, we're all in this together at this point, and we can only do what we can do. It's either possible or it's not. And we have to we have to pretend that it is, even if it isn't, right? Otherwise, we have no chance. Yes. And and that's my position, too. I, I'm trying to speak for, for what I hear. I'm a teacher. I work with young people. I have, uh, 
you know, uh, family members that are young. And so I'm, I want to give them voice and I think it's important to address their concerns, which are absolutely justifiable. Yeah, no question about it. And speaking of like young people, they're not on top of the hierarchy. No. They're not. And climate justice is social justice. Uh, I think it's essential that we, we consider that. Um, climate disruptions are already adversely affecting the poor in, all over the world, the most vulnerable directly. It's the people who have the most recently made gains in the world because of globalization and all of that that are going to lose out the fastest, right? They'll be the first to lose. The last to gain are the first to lose. The effects of climate disruptions are wide and varied, and we don't even understand how much the world uh, populations are already being disrupted by climate. Uh, some of us have an inkling of that, but most people don't have a clue that this is real. This is now. It's happening. Um, for example, According to the Malawa Fund, climate-related events will prevent at least 4 million girls in lower-income countries this year from finishing their education. And by 2025, it's expected 12 million girls will lose their chance of any education. And we know, we know what happens to uneducated girls living in poor country, a more brutal life. Um, it's, it's such a, it, it seems like a side issue, but it's a central issue. And there's a thousand of these, right? How, how climate is affecting humanity. Once again, let's return to the hard truth that the old and the rich and the white and the male are deciding the fate of the young and the poor and the brown and the female, and they're failing miserably, according to the, the, what we're seeing. Yes, there has been progress, uh, and that's great. Uh, and I think we should we should count it, but uh, it's not enough to put out part of the fire in the house, right? You can't just say, okay, we're making progress because now only 60% of the house is burning down versus 70%. And that's what young people hear when they're saying, oh, yes, we're making incremental change. What we hope, what, what I say is that change is not linear just like climate change is not linear, is that it starts slow and then you hit that hockey puck curve and all of a sudden small change can really all of a sudden manifest into really significant change. And that's what I'm hoping for. Um, I think um, the climate crisis is the biggest social justice issue of our times. And we see the right also centrists, also what we just talked about in earlier in, in this, in this, uh, 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 chart that we critiqued, right? Um, that people are maneuvering to divorce these two things. Yeah. They're trying to divorce social justice with climate change action. And like, for example, in the Green New Deal, right? It was so hostily received by so many in our society. And also by the refusal of the rich nations to assist poor nations. They don't want to make that association. And because that, apparently that makes us woke and yeah. religiously, uh, religious zealots by making this association, right? Well, <laughs> anyway, what can you say about that? First of all, the whole thing is completely unsurprising. I mean, the, it, yeah. it, we, we know that any problem, whether it's illness or natural disaster or unemployment, like any problem that you can think of in, in, in life is going to hit the poor harder than it hits the rich. And... One of the things that's going on here is that 
the rich countries have always had this self-congratulatory attitude, you know, rising tide lifts all boats and that like, oh yeah, even though we're stingy and we're not giving any, we're not, we're not giving enough foreign aid or whatever, you know, we we're, but we're promoting capitalism and capitalism is going to help those people anyway. And that attitude is now being shown by events to be not only false, but completely self-serving and a lie. And so the more we, the more the climate crisis begins to bite the more we start to see suffering, the more they have to justify it and the angrier they get. It's the same thing as with COVID, right? I mean, Trump bungled COVID. And so this the, being be, having their noses rubbed in it is the reason why the right is uh, so angry and why they suddenly turned you know, anti-vax and anti-mask. Because at a certain point when you, when it's bald-faced obvious that you have screwed up, denial is the refuge of cowards. And so that's what's going on. And climate change is just yeah. an extension of colonialism, disaster capitalism, and first world hegemony. I mean, it's just it, it's just a logical consequence, right? The wealthy nations right. have gotten wealthy by ruining the biosphere for everyone. And they can't any deny it anymore. And so they're just getting angry. And 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 they're and they're publishing charts like this, like this despicable uh uh, uh chart that we went over today. We in this country have a huge, huge carbon footprint, 15 to 20 tons per person. And if you're rich, it's like many times that. Okay. And so the reality is we're going to have to stop that. Either, <laughs> either we stop having these big carbon footprints or people are going to die. And, you know, what's going on yeah. is that, as, and when it comes to mitigation measures, right, we're now asking developing nations to forego oil and gas to fulfill climate targets but then we're not willing to pay for it. Once again, it's just, this is a, this is a huge ideological crack up for free markets, right? And for the, for the attitudes yeah. of, of uh, that, that say that free markets will solve the world's problems. They won't, they haven't, they can't, and it's going to change. It's either going to change by changing our system or it's going to change by killing large numbers of people. And when I say large, I'm talking about in the billions. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, at this point, um, let's go ahead and turn to maybe solutions and the challenges of solutions that have been talked about in this latest conference. And we all know the main challenge, the world has to draw down the use of fossil fuels as quickly as possible. But that's not all of it, of course, right? There's, let's mention a few other problems and, and solutions before uh, we, we can sort of assess how successful this COP summit has been. Part of the solution is to shift into a green economy, not only to draw down, but to create jobs for people. Millions of green jobs, as they say, right? Mm -hmm. People now working in the fossil fuel industry and, and related industries can shift to greener industries. You hear that all the time. Yeah. And that will generate the funds itself to have mitigation and to have, you know, newer technologies and to make, and so it progresses, it snowballs. In theory, that's what we want to do. Yeah. Um, but the problem is really, truly massive. And my take is that, you know, that, that green jobs alone, not any one thing alone is going to be enough by far. Um, so we have to come up with the money for green energy and for mitigation before we have all this wonderful wealth from green energy so we, uh, jobs, right? Yeah. It has to start now. Well, <laughs> uh, we, have, we have mitigation working with a problem, right? You're making it better. And then the other big one, huge one is adaptation because we're going to have to deal with the disasters. Well, the disasters, okay. 
let's just let's just be honest about this is that our standard of living is going to drop. And we know this because you can't just keep the government can't just keep doling out money. You've got you've got a, a disaster curve going up like this of billion dollar disasters that are like every year they're yeah. getting more and more and more of them. And so um, how long is the government just going to keep writing checks to people for these disasters? Um, it can't. It can't afford it. Like we're going to you ultimately run into, you know, we, we just had the covid thing and the government spent trillions of dollars dealing with that. Right. So you, you, you eventually run out of value in your economy if you don't build and and so you know and and we're going to have to re- have to have our standard of living reduced and that's very politically difficult but th- there is some good news however and that is that more people right now in the US work in green energy than they work than work for the fossil fuel industry it's already happened we've already passed that point right and we could have in the past gotten a lot of money for this transition from a carbon tax but we didn't and it's not too late like if we passed a carbon tax tomorrow it would immediately help and Conservatives have always known this, that it would help and that a carbon tax would have been a death knell for the fossil industry. So they made sure that it never passed. And that has cost us very dearly in terms of mitigation, because had we been able to do an orderly transition where we started slowly taxing carbon and slowly ramping up the price of carbon energy, while at the same time giving assistance to low carbon or no carbon energy, right? We would have been through most of this. I know. And what a loss. It's, it's a terrible loss. The opportunity cost is, is like you can't even imagine. And this is all of us, though. It's not just conservatives. It's the lack of understanding, the knee-jerk reaction you know, that either climate change isn't happening or we're doomed. Either one of those positions is a denialist position. And, and the other thing that really drives me crazy is the fucking whining about gas prices. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, know? I know. We've got a choice. Either we, Well, it's purposeful. It's purposeful, yeah. Either we pay more for gas, which would have happened with a carbon tax, or we lose the climate. There's no, there's no in-between position, right? Um, people have made their choice very clear. They freak out when gas goes up a dollar a gallon. Right now, it's gone from like, you know, $350 to, to, to $450 or maybe five bucks. It's, it's not a tremendous amount. Gasoline should be at $10 a gallon, okay? And I want to say that again. People just don't, they can't wrap their heads around this, but to fix the climate... Gasoline needs to be ten to fifteen dollars a gallon, and and it shocks people because yeah. they don't understand that every gallon of gasoline that we burn causes somewhere between ten and fifteen dollars of damage that we're passing on to future g- generations. This is what's known as the social cost of carbon, and it's well yeah. documented. This is not like this is not some liberal conspiracy. Okay, the social cost of carbon ad- takes real real costs from things like natural disasters and crop failures and and you know things that are happening to real people and health effects health yeah. effects yeah like like the pollution thing you mentioned earlier 11 million people a year what are their lives worth right so we have just acted as if those things didn't exist and if if we really acted like they did exist we'd be paying somewhere around 10 or 15 bucks a gallon and that would make people think twice before buying a big gas burning truck okay Right. So pe- right. people are not even in the right universe uh, when it comes to the kinds of changes that will be needed. And I was going to I was going to talk about this uh, survey in The Guardian, but I'm just going to link to it in the show notes because we don't we've already we're, we're getting close to time. And I don't want to I don't want to say it would take me like 10 minutes to go through it. Right. But, uh, you know, only maybe one in 10,000 people really fully understands the imp- all the implications of the climate crisis and everybody else is just running on media spin uh, or giving into their own fears and anxieties. And there's no intellectual leadership 
We need intellectual leadership. In, uh, in a sane world, we'd be having constant meetings, daily TV broadcasts, ongoing workshops on climate all over the world. We'd have a well-funded education campaign, and we'd explain this stuff to school kids and adults on an ongoing basis. But that would be a, a world without Fox News. So <laughs> not exactly. the world we live in. Well, I mean, good, great points. And I want to just add, broaden the perspective here a little bit. Ever since we went on this uh, neoliberalism kick with the Reagan revolution, mm -hmm. every successive generation has had a lower standard of living, mm -hmm. right? And that had nothing to do with climate mitigation or climate change. That has to do with a with a, a political economy that does not serve people. It serves the wealthy. And so the conservatives can keep complaining bitterly about, you know, George Bush Sr. can say, you know, America stand, you know, way of life is not negotiable, but it was negotiable. Oh. And it did, it did, it took a huge hit by his own policies and the policies of the right. Mm -hmm. And so now they're sitting here and complaining and whining about high gas prices and how that's awful and how we have to, we have to burn more fossil fuel. If it, it smacks in the face of just, sheer ludicrous, you know, absurdity. Mm -hmm. um, when, like you said, all these externalities, if you add them together, the real price of, of uh, gallon of gas is very, very, very much higher than three, four or five dollars a gallon. So, uh, let's just look at what's happened so far. And I mean, of course, the conference ended today, but it's going to continue. They're going to be talking uh, further uh, after the delegates go home. So what's happened right now, more than 100 countries, including Russia, Brazil, and the US, and the United Kingdom, all in all lands that include about 85% of the world's forests pledged to end deforestation by 2030. That sounds great, right? Um, provide $20 billion in public and funded, uh, private support for that endeavor. Man, I hope so. I hope they, they stick to that pledge. Japan, South Korea, China, and 22 other countries, at least probably a lot more by this point, agreed to end the financing of coal power in other countries. Uh, but many of the big players like China have not made that pledge. They refuse to make it. A hundred nations signed global methane pledge to lower those emissions by 30% by 2030. Wonderful. It's not nearly enough, but it's something. Uh, let's see if they meet those pledges. Unfortunately, though, again, it comes down to measurement. A lot of these things are incredibly difficult to measure. It's not like there's like a meter that measures this stuff, right? And we can just point to it. it it's, it's a huge complex endeavor to actually assess how much, what, what, what the carbon footprints are of all of these human well, activities. Satellites make it possible. You can actually do this with satellites. And we have, we just launched a new satellite that is, that is good for detecting carbon and methane both. So good news. Yeah. And during the Trump administration, they actually blocked one of the satellites that does that from, from being launched. I remember yeah. because of that exact, they didn't want it to be measured, right? So, you, as you mentioned, the US and China pledged to work together to speed up progress. That's, that's an encouraging sign. Both nations committed to work to limit methane emissions and use, quote, their best efforts to phase out unabated coal in this decade as fast as it is achievable, unquote, whatever the hell that means. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like double, what, double talk, speak, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I sort of new strategies growing, as I mentioned, this net zero club thing. The top three emitters have all joined this club. The US pledged to reach net zero by 2050, China by 2060, and India by 2070. Uh, there are 70 more countries on top of that that have also uh, pledged the same. Uh, it sounds great, but let's parse this out, okay? Little was agreed on to actually reduce fossil fuel production and consumption directly in clear and enforceable ways. And pledges are just that, pledges, and we'll see. 
and we'll have to, you know, we're going to have to be shown that they're going to abide by those pledges. Net zero itself is actually problematic. Frankly, the world seems to be unable to deal with some pretty horrific possibilities that are based on scientific research. There are many potential runaway natural feedback effects, unknown effects, and some are known that are getting more probable every day. Every day we go by without really fixing this issue, these feedbacks augment. Waiting decades before reaching next zero is the biggest gamble in human history because of these feedbacks. All of this talk about keeping the planet below 1.5 is frankly delusional. Based on science, it's not going to happen. It's already baked in that we're going to surpass 1.5 and very likely 2.0. No matter what humanity does at this point, there is a massive amount of heat energy stored in the ocean. And that energy is just going to come back into the atmosphere. That is just like having a giant swimming pool and thinking that, you know, that if you shut the power in the room, it's not, it's, it's, you know, the room's going to get colder. It, it, the heat from the swimming pool is going to keep the room warm, right? And Going to net zero also removes another aspect of part of emissions, which is particulates, which is very different than greenhouse gases. They have the opposite effect that they cool the earth down by blocking the sun. Little particles reflect the sun rays back into space. And so that lowers the temperature. Of course, greenhouse gases increase it far higher than that. So, so the net effect is warming. So together, both of these things, the, uh, the ocean effect and the particular effects, are going to amount to a, probably a degree C above where we are today. Even if we magically turned the switch and went to net zero today, we're probably looking at another degree temperature rise on top of what we have today. And no one's talking about this that I see in the political realm. Then that, that's just staggering to me. Um, of course, you're right, Sean, it still matters what we do, but we have to be sober and honest about the scenario that we face. Yeah. Um, because if, we, if we're not, we're going to get Pollyannic. Right? And, that, and I guess that's the young people's point. Yeah. So we got to wake up, right? Yeah. We got we to gotta wake up to and face this challenge. Yeah. Well, when I hear things like, oh, we're going to be net zero by 2070, 2070? That's like that's like the song, um, you know, for, by Jane's Addiction. Uh, I, we're gonna kick tomorrow, right? We're gonna kick tomorrow. Every day we're gonna kick tomorrow, and and that is because um, when you really look at it, it's it's the point that I made before. It's the thirty trillion dollars. You're asking kids not to take the candy out of the candy bowl. You're leaving the kids in the room with the candy bowl, and you're asking them not to eat it. And that's what's going yeah. on with fossil fuels. Fossil fuels equals development. It equals. Uh, a lot of things that, you know, that developing world hasn't had that we've taken for granted. And that's what makes this so insane. Humans have not faced a greater challenge than climate, perhaps since the genetic bottleneck that occurred 70,000 years ago that culled our species down to about 5,000 individuals. We don't know what caused that bottleneck. It could have been a super volcano or possibly a pandemic, but it's likely that it was climate related since there would have been no way for a disease to spread around the globe. So in a way, what we're doing now with the digging up and burning of fossil fuels is something equivalent to a supervolcano in slow motion. Because other than a sur massive surge in volcanism, there's no way that nature could change the climate as quickly as we have since the Industrial Revolution. We've gone from 200, Very true. 280 parts per million of concentration in 1850 to 420 today. That's a 50% increase. And it's the highest fraction of carbon in the atmosphere in at least 20 million years. 
we haven't even begun to see the impacts of this increase since there's a lot of hysteresis or lag in the climate system. Um, as you mentioned, the oceans have absorbed a lot of heat and the melting ice has also absorbed a lot of heat. What happens when the ice is gone, right? So if not for these buffers in the system, Earth's temperature today would be much hotter even than it is. And we're running a giant experiment with ourselves in the test tube. Unwise would be perhaps the understatement of all time. And I want to add, this is unnecessary. Had we begun this, the appropriate action in 1988 when James Hansen first told Congress about this problem, we would nearly be out of the woods by now. But instead, we're dealing with a crisis that could be our undoing, for real. And this is not apocalypticism. It's not a matter of opinion. We've set ourselves up with an existential risk that potentially exceeds that of nuclear weapons. And I want to address one last thing before we close, and that is the big lie that the climate is always changing. You hear this a lot. Once the impacts of climate change became undeniable, conservatives pivoted to claiming that the climate is always changing and there's nothing we can do about it, which is viciously wrong. We are doing something about it. We're making it worse. And what we have to do is stop making it worse. Humans evolved under very specific climatic conditions, as we discussed before, and were unsuited for the world that we're now building. Because, make no mistake, we did build this world. We've engineered ourselves right out of a livable climate. And that doesn't just look like things getting a bit warmer. It looks like famines and economic collapse and refugee crises and political instability and even war. People go to war over resources. It's extremely reliable. And they also go to war when they don't have enough to eat. I wish I was wrong about this, but anyone who has even the slightest understanding of history knows that it's true. So the best time to ramp up climate mitigation efforts would have been 50 years ago. That's a given. But the second best time is now. <laughs> we, not only have, now. <laughs> we not only have to do it, we also have to believe that we can succeed. And that's what I want to leave our listeners with today. This is not a message of doom. As Alex Steffen once said, cynicism is obedience. Giving into doom is compliance. Optimism is the radical act. And since we're the radical secular, it's our job to stay radical and offer people some hope that we can overcome this challenge. There's no choice. We have to succeed. Failure is not an option. And folks, that's our show today. Remember, if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, support us on Patreon, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Monday at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles weekly in our journal at theradicalsecular.com. I'm Joe Kipinti. Thank you for being here. And remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular. Radical Secular Podcast is written and produced by Christoph Defoe, Sean Prophet, Joe Okipinti, and Drew Scott. Artwork and design by Tim Stetner. Post-production and theme music by Sean Prophet. Special thanks to our support team, Lindsay Brightman, Jillian Sky Jacobs, and Lori Field Okipinti.